1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Couquier, the Economist Senior Editor. And coming up on today's show, is there a link between genes and exam success?
2: I think that it's good to kind of move past the debate of nature or nurture. And it's very much nature and nurture.
1: And understanding the sound of Bees.
0: What is essentially a smartphone app that you can place near the hive to determine what the different diseases are that the bees might be suffering from.
1: But first, as artificial intelligence is moving beyond the confines of the technology industry, we take a look into the world of the workplace and how AI is dramatically changing this. Joining me in the studio is The Economist's U.S. technology editor, Alexandra Suich Bass who wrote this week's cover story and special report on AI and business. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, Ken. Alexandra, AI has always been a frontier for business. It seems like it's making inroads today. What's going on?
3: So AI has been a major focus of tech companies in recent years. And Google, Facebook, Amazon, Alibaba, Baidu have built enormous commercial empires applying AI to their businesses, whether it's product recommendations, sorting through relevant content, filtering out spam. What's now happening is we're seeing AI move out of the technology sphere into mainstream business. And a lot of old-fashioned companies are starting to think about what their AI strategy strategy is and to position themselves for the years ahead.
1: And can you give me one or two examples of interesting uses of AI in the business sector?
3: So a lot of people think about AI as a very dramatic change that companies will have to undergo. They think of robots or artificial general intelligence, kind of spectacular developments. A lot of the changes that are happening at companies today are very unglamorous changes that are happening behind the scenes.
1: Okay. So this is really interesting, and it's a little bit different than... Technology in the workplace in the past, the image of the big video screen looking and the boss, looking at Charlie Chaplin in the great film Modern Times. I'm sure there's drawbacks and benefits to technology going and AI going into the workforce. So let's start with the benefits. What are some of the great things we can expect when we add AI into HR?
3: So there's a couple of things that I think people are excited about. The first is that AI will help make workplaces fairer. So humans, in spite of how strongly they believe in their own capabilities, actually have very bad judgment when it comes to deciding on which candidates to hire and checking their own biases at the door. So people tend to like – to hire people who are like them and might look like them. So AI can act as a virtual screen. So just as we saw orchestras introduce screens so that violinists would be able to play behind them and not bias the people who are selecting who to bring on to the orchestra, algorithms will also conceivably help prevent bias in the workplace. So that's one positive. Another is that AI will help increase the efficiency at which very menial tasks can be done. So reviewing a mil- 1.2 million job applications, which is what Johnson & Johnson sees in a year. So if humans are freed from that, they might be able to do higher-level things, even potentially have more free time. So those are some of the hopes.
1: Okay. And now what about the drawbacks?
3: So the drawbacks, I think, are even easier to see in a lot of places. So anyone who's read George Orwell's 1984 knows about telescreens and how society and workplaces can be surveilled by technology. So one concern is that the workplace of the future will become a less humane and less human place to work. So as companies are able to predict who is likely to be a good hire and who is likely to be a productive worker, they may make decisions about who to hire and who to keep on based on these things that people can't control.
1: So I'm sure you've thought about this, that many people are looking at privacy as somewhat of a luxury good, that people, even white-collar professionals and elites, will be able to get it because they'll be able to demand it and militate for their interests in that way, whereas people who are less in more vulnerable situations, the poor on hourly wages, might have to hand off all of their data to their taskmaster. Do you think that the world is going to cleave into these two ways of the workforce, where some have privacy and others don't?
3: It's a great question. We write in The Leader about the people who will be worse off are those who are at risk of being replaced by a robot or treated like one. In terms of those who are doing manual labor or in heavily surveilled environments like warehouses, for example, or on factory floors or in retail outlets, I think where there's actually a huge opportunity for companies to replace them with robots, they're going to have fewer options for advocating for their own rights to privacy.
1: This is a lot like Karl Marx's alienation of the worker. Now, the solution in the 19th century was the labor union. Do you think you're going to get these new forms of digital algorithmic labor unions?
3: I think we're more likely to see a resurgence of real life labor unions in environments where it's possible. I think that there's going to be a strong argument for blue collar workers and potentially even white collar workers to consider unions and collective bargaining as a possible solution.
1: What else can be done? I'm sure there's a role for norms, a role for business self-interest and maybe even a role for regulation.
3: So currently all of this is done very opaquely. Employees do not know what's collected about them. And And as the technology improves and the amount of data that's collected vastly increases, I think that the role of the company in helping their employees understand what's being gathered is very significant. The other question is, should there be some kind of right to see your data, but then also data portability? So some people want, when they're applying to another job, to have a blank slate and not have whatever information was gathered about them at their previous employer known to their next one or considered in their application for a new job. Others who are top performers might want that. So there's, there will also be a question to be worked out of who owns that data. Is it the company that collects it or is it the individual whose information is being gathered?
1: Right now, is that a legal lacuna or is there an answer?
3: Right now, the presumption is that company's proprietary information, and it's actually not the worker's right to either inspect it or transport it to a different company. There's also a really big potential legal issue around transparency and privacy with this data, where companies could choose to... To use third parties, for example, a lot of companies are buying off-the-shelf solutions for hiring, for example, um, and would share this data with those third parties as a way of helping train algorithms to better predict which employees to hire, for example. So they'll share it with these third parties. We saw this kind of data seepage and information seepage in the online ad industry, where the number of companies that ended up getting access to individuals' online browsing behavior, for example, vastly increased increased. And as the number of people in the room vastly increases or uh, companies in the room vastly increases, there's a huge leakage issue as well. And that, I think, will become a big issue, which is should companies be sharing this with outside firms without users' permission?
1: Do you believe that we have the right rules in place to use data effectively? And if not, what can we do not just to support the HR function of business, but business in general in terms of Artificial intelligence.
3: So I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is a lot of companies are asking how to prepare for the AI era and don't even have basic data collection in place. So we're talking about the future and the surveillance of the future in the workplace. Right now, a lot of the conversations that are happening are very basic about how to store data, gather the right data for machine learning algorithms. So to present this as something that surveillance is happening on a wide scale is not completely accurate. What we're trying to do is raise questions about how what we're experiencing today might uh, augur for the future.
1: That's great. Alexandra, thank you very
3: much. Thank you so much, Ken.
1: Next, new research led by Robert Plowman and Emily smith Woolley of King's College London have been looking into the link between genes and expected educational outcomes. Joining me in the studio to discuss what they found is one of the paper's authors, Emily smith Woolley. Hello, Emily.
2: Hiya. Thank you so much for having me.
1: My question first is, what is the full title of the paper?
2: Uh, That is a good question. It's quite a mouthful. It's differences between selective and non-selective school students mirror the genetic differences between them.
1: So clearly the first test of intelligence is whether you can memorize your own academic paper.
2: (laughs) It changed. The title changed quite a lot in the different drafts. And
1: how would you sum up what it is you were looking for?
2: Okay, so uh, we were interested in looking at the average differences between different school types in terms of GCSEs and also average genetic differences and kind of thinking about the factors that different schools can select on, so that's things like ability and achievement and, to an extent, socioeconomic status. And what are the effects of these in terms of average genetic differences, but also once you account for these factors, do we still see these average GCSE differences between schools?
1: Okay, and GCSEs is the British Standardised Test.
2: Exactly, yes, 16. So at the end of kind of compulsory education, it's the exams that students do.
1: And what did you learn?
2: We found that once you accounted for the factors that um, schools use in kind of the selection process, either actively in terms of ability or achievement or passively in terms of socioeconomic status, that there were very little differences between students' achievement on these standardized tests uh, between the different school types. We also found that because the schools select to a certain extent on factors that are known to be heritable, so genetically influenced, that there were small average genetic differences between students attending the different school types.
1: Oh, I love this. So what were some of these genetic differences among students attending different schools.
2: So what we did was we created a genome-wide polygenic score for each person in our sample. And this is a score that's based on their individual DNA and it's created by summing together all of the genetic variants, this is tens of thousands of genetic variants that they have that have been associated with educational attainment. So this creates a score for an individual and it puts them somewhere on a kind of a continuum. And we found that those students attending selective schools, so those are grammar schools and private schools, had on average a higher genome-wide polygenic score compared to those attending non-selective schools. But an important point is that there was a lot of overlap uh, between the different school types.
1: Let's talk about the fact that at these great selective schools, you've got people which have a richer, more intellectual gene pool. Tell me more.
2: And at non selective schools, you have exactly the same bunch of people, and at grammar schools and at private schools. I think the point is that there is this incredible overlap between students at any different school types. It's the same for GCSE differences. You'll have people in non selective schools who have, get very high exam scores and very low exam scores, and you'll find that within school types, but also within schools as well.
1: So I'm now forced to ask, is this really a sign of intelligence or of exam success?
2: So I think that this just shows that they have slightly more, on average, of course, of these genetic variants that increase educational attainment. And these variants are associated with doing well on exams and they've also been shown to correlate with intelligence as well. Uh, They correlate with a whole bunch of things.
1: So this should actually be a boon and a welcome to those in the nature versus nurture debate because it suggests that in fact, no matter from what gene pool you spring, you you may or may not have an equal opportunity and chance at life by putting initiative in?
2: I think that it's good to kind of move past the debate of nature or nurture, and it's very much nature and nurture. I could have all the genetic variants in the world that make me the best reader, but if no one gives me the environment, if no one gives me a book, if no one teaches me to read, I'm never going to be able to to read. So I think it shows the kind of interplay. Emily, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. So what are your thoughts on the influence of genes on exam success or the future of AI on the workplace? Tell us in an email or send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And finally, the noise of an angry bee is something we all may recognize, but some beekeepers believe they can deduce the well-being of their bees from the sounds that they make. But soon beekeepers will be able to try and find out what is troubling their colonies by the use of a smartphone app. Joining me in the studio to explore how it works is The Economist's Innovation Editor, Paul Markley. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. Paul, the app is making a buzz, forgive me, among beekeepers, but what does it exactly do?
0: Some beekeepers will tell you they can hear if their bees are healthy from the sound they're making, the buzz from the hive, if you like. And that idea has been put to work by a group at the University of Montana to come up with what is essentially a smartphone app that you can place near the hive, press a button, hold for 30 seconds, record the noise from inside. And from that uses a form of artificial intelligence and algorithms and all these latest buzzwords to determine what the different diseases are that the bees might be suffering from. So, Paul, how did they get this idea? That's the interesting backstory here, because the researchers at the uh, University of Montana were looking at using bees to hunt for mines. A bit like you can train sniffer dogs to detect the chemicals that mines in the ground give off. The trouble is dogs are a bit heavy, so they set the mines off. Um, Some people train rats. But these beekeepers were training bees, which actually are rather good and be trained very quickly. And that's an ongoing project. But the problem was if you're going to use this in the field with soldiers and civilian contractors, they need to be very good at looking after bees. And the more knowledgeable, the better. So the idea came, well, maybe they could build a device that listened to the hive like some of the very experienced uh, beekeepers do to find out the condition of the bees. The idea to develop this was then tested out from hives all over the world, taking sound recordings and matching them to the problems those hives had, and then use the AI systems and techniques to match those sounds to these specific diseases. And then the idea came, of course, well, let's not build a specific machine when we can put this on a smartphone app. And that is now being tested and should go live shortly.
1: Okay, so what are some of the other uses that this app has?
0: Well, it could detect things like mites, which can cause hives a problem and various other conditions, and including what are now thought to be some of the possible indicators of colony collapse disorder, which is a very mysterious syndrome that's wiped out millions of uh, honeybee hives around the world. That's now thought to be not caused by one disease, but possibly a multitude of them or a number of them anyway. And so some of those symptoms might be found as an early warning that this colony collapse is pending. And so something might be done about it. So I
1: must ask the question, if we're able to get a general sense of the health and maybe even the emotional state of the bees, whether they're happy or not, are we able to understand maybe other animals through taking the data and applying audio recognition to it?
0: That's an intriguing question, Ken, but I think possibly that's right because you find experts on animals in various areas who probably will tell you that they can understand what their animals are saying or the noises they're making or even the expressions they're having, even the expressions on their faces to deduce uh, various things about them. And any dog owner will tell you that, and any cat owner as well. So maybe there's a whole host of uh, communication apps to come.
1: My wife is a genius at understanding whatever the baby in the house knows if it's wet or wants to be cuddled or is lonely, hungry, but then she feeds me and I'm fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A child-keeping app. There you go.
1: Great. Exactly. Paul, thanks a lot. That's a pleasure. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Couquier and in London, this is The AI Economist.